0: All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode are professionally embarrassing, are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. (laughs) to Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 6 of Professionally Embarrassing. I can't believe we're already over halfway through season two and we're going to be taking another break again at episode 10 but we've got lots to chat about before then Um, a couple of things before I launch into what did you see on Bailey firstly thank you so much to all our listeners because we hit a real milestone in our stats which is that we hit 10,000 downloads on this podcast That's completely insane. I have no idea who's listening to us. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who's rated us, reviewed us, anyone who supported us when we were nominated for commentator of the year. It means so much to us and it motivates us to just keep going. So the case I'm talking about this week is one I tweeted about a few days ago, and it's the judgment of His Honour Judge Dancy in E, a child step-parent adoption. It was handed down in January, so it's a very recent case. And I picked this case because it is written in the form of a letter to the child herself, and she's given the pseudonym Ellie in the judgment. I think it's enormously Compassionate writing and analysis about a situation that is very, very difficult and where I don't think there's really a right or wrong answer. And it highlights the grey areas that we often find ourselves in as family lawyers. Ellie is a 17 year old girl who wants to be adopted by her stepmother. She, her father, and the stepmother are strongly in favour of adoption. Her birth mother is strongly against it. And the judge also heard from a social worker and the children's guardian, who were clear that he should not make an adoption order. The background here is that after the parent separation, Ellie was living with her birth mum, spending time with her father. But it was a difficult dynamic. The parents didn't really get along and there were lengthy court proceedings. About 10 years ago, Ellie gradually moved to live with her father and her stepmom. And the stepmom has her own children who Ellie gets on with and sees as her siblings. Ellie felt her birth mother didn't treat her as she did her other children. She felt that her birth mother didn't make an effort or show interest in her. And she said that in the last year, the birth mother had only sent her four texts. For the last Five years, Ellie had been calling her stepmom, mum, and her birth mother by her first name. Ellie wrote to the judge and said she didn't want any relationship with her birth mum. The birth mum's position is, look, I know I I wouldn't win mother of the year, but she also says that she feels pushed out of Ellie's life. She thought the stepmom is lovely and didn't want to get in the way of her relationship with Ellie. But over the last year or so, she had a number of personal difficulties, which got in the way of her being more in touch with Ellie. One of those difficulties included that Ellie's brother had an accident and suffered life changing injuries and so needed 24 seven care. Of course, one of the unfortunate elements of this case is that Ellie only found out about that her brother's accident from the social workers report rather than being told that by her mother herself. Her mother is saying, well, we didn't want to upset her. But that probably didn't help her sense of feeling excluded from that side of the family. The judge sets out the principles he has to consider in a very simple child-focused way. For non-lawyers, it's a, a good judgment to read because he doesn't refer to lots of statutes and case law. It's very digestible. He refers to the checklist that he needs to go through, which references section one, subsection four of the Adoption and Children Act, which is a different checklist to the welfare checklist in section one of the Children Act. He goes through each of those. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm just going to flag up what I found interesting, which is that the professionals, understandably, were worried that although Ellie's very articulate, she's emotionally immature, and caught up in the dynamic between her parents, that conflict, they were worried that how she feels at 17 may not be how she feels in her 20s or 30s, which I think is completely understandable. Certainly 10 years ago, I thought and behaved very differently to how I behave now at 27. They were worried she may regret it later. And they were also worried that she was overwhelmingly positive about her stepmom, and overwhelmingly negative about her birth mum. Where the judge departed from the professional recommendation is about the status of an adoption order and the status of the stepmom as Ellie moves into adulthood. And that seems to be the factor that tips the balance for him. He says, well, the professionals have suggested alternatives. They've suggested that I could make a parental responsibility order for the stepmother or uh, lives with child arrangements order, which would give her parental responsibility. But then he says, however, that would only last until she turned 18, so imminently. The judge says, quote, what you seek, and he's addressing Ellie, what you seek seems to me something more fundamental and important than that. It is really based on this point that I do not agree with the professional recommendation. He refers to a case called REPE in the Court of Appeal, REPE step-parent adoption, where the court gave guidance on how to approach step-parent adoptions. And he sets these out and says, A, the key is proportionality, both when looking at your welfare and considering whether to put aside your mum's consent. B, I need to consider the role your mum plays in your life as well as your half-siblings and what you might lose if an adoption order is made. C, I also need to think about the benefits that adoption would bring to you now and into adulthood and weigh those against potential losses. D, adoption gives a status that cannot be achieved by any other type of order. E, it would also extinguish any legal status and parental responsibility that your mum holds. And F, the decision therefore has to be proportionate. Where a birth parent has a more active role in relationship with the child, there is more to be lost and adoption is less likely to be proportionate than where there has been no role or relationship for a long time or ever. So the judge says he found the decision really difficult and finely balanced and that there were arguments on both sides that were very compelling. He said that the birth mum hadn't always been the mother to Ellie that she could have been. In contrast to the care from the stepmum, he notes that Ellie's view of her birth mum in years to come might change. He looks at the potential losses of adoption and the risk that it would burn bridges with the birth mum's family and her half siblings on that side. Though he also says, on the other hand, well, maybe if Ellie's happier with that secure legal status of her stepmom as her mother, she might feel more able to reach out to her birth mum side of the family. Ultimately, he departs from the professional recommendations and concludes in favour of an adoption order being made. And he states at paragraphs 61 and 62, the need for you to have a mother who is the person giving you love and care and acting as your mother, who has legal status as such, not just during the short remainder of your childhood, but through into adulthood and later years, is powerful. Putting aside for a moment the questions and whys and wherefores about your relationship with your birth mum, the fact is that your step has effectively been your mother for the last 10 years. Whether or not your view of your mother is adversely affected by perspectives that might change with time, it is not in my view irrational for you to want your mother, as you see her so clearly, to be your mother in every sense, emotionally, psychologically, practically and legally. And it is the last of those that only adoption can afford. The judge says that where there's a clash of rights and respect of family life, Ellie's prevail, and he dispenses with the birth mother's consent to the making of an adoption order. So it's a really, really difficult case and the balance could have fallen either way. A different judge could have carried out that analysis and come to a different conclusion we are accustomed to seeing adoption orders made off the back of care proceedings where a parent has been unable to care for a child but that's not the situation here there is nothing to suggest that the birth mother can't provide good enough care or is risky or anything like that it's effectively there is someone who is a better mother to this child than the birth mother there is something intuitively uncomfortable for me about that. And it reminds me of the Headley quote about society being willing to tolerate very diverse standards of parenting. And it's not the providence of the state to spare children all the consequences of defective parenting, albeit I know that that was said in a very different context. And that's not me saying the judge's decision is wrong, just that it makes me uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable read. And I'm sure the potential consequences of this decision troubled the judge greatly. What do you think, Maddie?
1: I must admit, I think I disagree with you. I don't think it is a difficult case because I think this is a child in all but name, essentially. I mean, she's 17 and she has strong wishes about how she wants her life to go. And whilst I completely appreciate the difficulties in terms of how she feels at 17 is not how she'll feel when she's 27, 37 and so on. I think this is a case that for me, I would find very comfortable saying, we need to listen to the young person at the centre of this if this is what she wants to do she understands the consequences of it she understands the consequences of an adoption order. she may not fully understand the emotional elements of it as she moves through her life but I, I do think the purpose of the family court sometimes is simply to respect children and give them autonomy over their lives and I think it's one of those cases that I think is quite good for that and certainly something that I would support if this is a young person who wants to do this it may not be the right decision. It's a bit like the court of protection cases, you know, the court doesn't make decisions in the best interests, just because they don't agree with what the person wants, even if they lack capacity or are a young person. I think, you know, if that's what she wants to do, and there's no outright harm to her in doing that, I would find it quite easy to make that decision, I think.
0: Yeah, we'll have to agree to disagree. I think if I were the judge in that case, I would have done what, Dancy seems to have done in this judgment, which is go back and forth quite a lot between the various arguments that had been advanced. It's a beautifully written judgment, though, putting the the actual decision aside. I love seeing judgments like this. They do happen on occasion where judgments are addressed as letters to the children. And I think it makes the child feel so much more a part of the process. And to be reminded that they are the centre of the decision making, because these sorts of cases, especially with this high conflict between the parents, can just descend into arguments and disputes between the parents and you completely forget the child at the centre of it. And this judge doesn't do that. At the forefront of his mind always is Ellie.
1: Also, if anyone interested in this, we did discuss step-parent adoption in a similar context in season one, episode eight. I spoke about a case called Riel, which was a step-parent adoption case where the child was a lot younger And his father was also on the scene and the court did make an order for the adoption by him of his mother's partner. Very similar issues, but the child was a lot younger and had wishes, but not wishes that I would consider to be determinative. So if you're interested in this area, maybe go back to season one, episode eight and have a listen to that and see if you can see the comparisons between the two. The case that I'm doing this week is a case I am obsessed with. I've tweeted about it. I think it's amazing. I think everyone should read it. If you're applying for pupillage at the moment, I think definitely read it because it's a great answer to why do you want to do family law? I really love it. So it's called NP and DP. It's a Hague Convention case about an abduction. The child at the centre is a boy aged four and a half who was born in the US. In 2019, his mother abducted him essentially from Illinois in the US and went underground went away, no one knew where she was for two years until she resurfaced in the UK and revealed her whereabouts and started to engage in proceedings. The father had been looking for her and the child for a number of years. There was some dispute about whether it was an agreed holiday in 2019 that turned into a wrongful detention or whether it was always a wrongful removal. For the purposes of the case, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is the facts of this particular case. So As I say, the mother left in 2019. She has not seen the father, and the father has not seen the child since April 2019 when they left America. The parents are of Asian descent. The father is age 46, was born and brought up in the US. The mother is 43, was born and brought up in England, and is a British citizen. In 1996, when she was 18, she emigrated to the US and has lived there since, and then moved back in April 2019. The mother applied in the US for an order for custody, what the Americans call custody, over their son, the four and a half year old. They had actually separated before the child was even born. And apart from two brief occasions at the hospital of the birth, the father didn't see the child until 2018. Nonetheless, proceedings were instigated in Illinois at the local McLean County Circuit Court for a custody order. The mother then applied for the American proceedings at McLean County Circuit Court to be transferred to another court more local to where she was living at the time, which was over 100 miles away, classic America, still in the same state, but 100 miles away from where the father was. Her application to move the proceedings was refused. And subsequently, if not before, the mother developed what the judge describes as a genuine perception to the point of an obsession that the family judges at the McLean County Court, and in particular Judge Sarah Duffy, is biased against her. The judge says that this perception has been bolstered by a number of events. The judge refused an application by the mother of Kay, who is the father's other child with a different woman, for permission to relocate internally within America to another state. That resulted in Kay moving to live with the father because the mother's application to relocate was refused. The mother says that because of this, the judge in America is privy to evidence and material in the case concerning Kay, which has not been shared with the mother and which the mother considers to be unfair. The mother perceives that there is a cosy relationship between the judge and the father's local attorney, whereas her previous attorneys were not, she feels, accorded the same respect. She was disturbed when at one hearing, the judge heard the attorneys in chambers from which she was excluded. And her attorney later reported to her that negative allegations had been made against her in a private hearing with the judge. She was concerned that the judge had selected a particular evaluator, which is like a CAFCAST reporter, whom the judge allegedly referred to as her friend. She increasingly felt that the father would litigate against her relentlessly, just as he had, she says, against the mother of the other child. So that's the background of the proceedings in America. It goes on to say that all of these concerns have been hugely intensified when in June 2021, Judge Sarah Duffy made an order granting sole custody of this child, the son, four and a half year old, to the father and made what the mother considers to be an extremely harsh financial order, which stripped her essentially of all of her substantial premarital assets. She was ordered to pay for the father's child support, backdated to April 2019, and made a number of orders, basically, that the child would be immediately moved to the father's care as soon as the mother came back to America. Now, the judge in this case, MP and DP, who is Mr. Justice Holman, makes these very considered comments. I should make crystal clear that I neither express nor have the slightest view of my own about any of the matters upon which the mother's complaint and perception of bias are founded. The critical point is that the mother does genuinely and undoubtedly now have a consuming belief that she could never obtain a fair hearing before the McLean County Circuit Court, whether from Judge Duffy or from any other judge of that court. This has recently culminated last week in the mother filing a complaint against the judge and the Judiciary Board of Illinois. The judge says he's seen the formal complaint form, but he's not read the attached documents and he is not going to comment on whether the mother is right or wrong to say that the judge in America is biased. Nonetheless, what he does say is that the mother has an unshakable belief that the judge is biased. Within these proceedings, as the father instigated hate convention proceedings in the UK in July 2019, the child, the son, was assessed by a child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Sales. The report from Dr. Sales sets out that her conclusion and opinion is that the child appears to have a profile of difficulties in keeping with autistic spectrum disorder. Dr. Sales says there are also concerns about his speech and language development, which may be part of ASD or may not. He is also a very active and fidgety child, but it's too early to say whether he has a diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. She considers that the child's principal attachment will be with his mother, with whom he has always lived, and that separating him from his mother would cause profound damage to his emotional development. As a child with autistic traits and autistic spectrum disorders, he would be more affected by changes to his routine and living arrangements than a child without such difficulties. It would appear that this is a child of habit with rigid thinking, a desire for routines and very high levels of anxiety. She goes on to confirm that a change of living circumstances in the event he has returned to the US may prove exceptionally difficult for him, increasing his levels of already high anxiety, even if he lives with his mother once there. Separating the child from his mother, with whom he has lived since birth, would be extremely harmful for him. Any child would suffer significant emotional damage under such a circumstance. But for this child, it would be even more damaging, and this would undoubtedly lead to an exacerbation of emotional and behavioural problems that would be very difficult to address. Just briefly, the law in relation to this case is, is straightforward it's a Hay Convention summary return case. Unless the mother can establish defence under article 13b that the child would be at grave risk of suffering harm were he to return to his home country. Dr Sales gave oral evidence. She said that she is absolutely convinced that the child has neurodevelopmental difficulties, speech and language difficulties as part of ASD, and they're probably not environmental, but as a result of some inherited genetic predisposition. She said that she is confidently saying that he has a range of difficulties that are indicative of ASD, She said that the diagnosis of ASD does mean that he is much more likely to have difficulties associated with change and a lack of routine. She said that ASD is also a risk factor for a range of emotional problems and that if he is returned to the US, it is absolutely imperative that his mother goes with him. If he goes without his mother, the impact on his emotional development would be catastrophic. So the judge says, I've heard from the psychiatrist, I understand the profile of this child, I understand the difficulties at play here, father is asking child to be returned to the US. Mother is saying no. The judge heard oral evidence from the mother on the first day of the hearing and then sustained oral submissions from both of the advocates, both of whom are very senior, very experienced, both silks. He then says that there was an exceptionally late development by an email sent to the mother's team on the last day of the hearing in what he thought were the dying moments of the hearing prior to judgment. The father proposed a raft of proposals and protective measures going far beyond anything he had previously offered. The judge said, I inevitably had to give the mother an opportunity to consider them overnight and discuss them with her legal team. The following morning, I was told there was a range of objections with them, including that they still did not give the mother the overriding protection that she sought, which is that this case would never and could not ever again be heard in the McLean Circuit County Court. The instructions from the mother were that she would still refuse to return, even if he ordered the return of the child. So what the mother's case is, is that I absolutely will not go back to America with or without my child I will not go because the minute I get there I will be subjected to a raft of very harsh restrictive and difficult court orders that I can't get out of by a judge who I feel is biased against me and I will never get a fair hearing so I simply can't go back as difficult as that is for me to say even if the child is ordered to return I will not be going with him and that's in the context of this child having a primary and significant attachment to his mother and any separation from his mother would be catastrophic. So, Mr Justice Holman says this, and I like this paragraph a lot. He says, it is a truism in all family law cases of this general type, that they concern this particular mother or wife, this particular father or husband, and this particular child or children. And I know that Malcolm and I have both made submissions in that regard before, we're not talking about any child, Your Honour. We're talking about this child. And Mr Justice Homan looks at the case of C, which is one of the most recent cases in relation to parents who refuse to return with children when ordered to under the Hague convention. So obviously the court has the power to order return of children to their home countries. It does not have the power to compel adults to go back to countries that they came from. They're adults. There's no power and jurisdiction for the court to do that. So what he says is that in C, the Court of Appeal had to ask itself, I must assess the mother's evidence and seek to determine the reality of what she will do. Will she return or not? That test is not what is it reasonable for her to do, but what will she subjectively, factually, substantially do? And I added that bit at the end. That's not in the quote. Mr Justice Holman says there is no criticism of those words by the Court of Appeal. The objective rationality of an asserted decision not to return is relevant in assessing the reality of what she will do. But in the end, the court has to assess what that particular parent in question will or will not do, whether rational or not. He then goes through the Guide to Good Practice in relation to Hay Convention cases and is very alive, he says, to the footnote 108, paragraph 72 of that guidance that says, Allowing for the return mechanism to deactivate automatically on the sole account of the refusal of the taking parent to return would subject the system designed by the international community to the unilateral will of the defendant. And that's a footnote in the guide to good practice. Mr. Justice Holman goes on to say, however, it is necessary to emphasize the words deactivate automatically in that footnote. In the last analysis, this child has the parents whom he has. And if on the facts and in the circumstances of the case, there would be a grave risk of psychological harm, I cannot expose him to that just to vindicate the will of the international community. So he goes on to say that he believes that the mother genuinely will not return to the US And that if she does not return and the child is ordered to return, he will be subjected to such significant harm that it would not be in his interests to order him to return. And then there's some back and forth about these protective measures offered by the father, but ultimately it's accepted that the father can't guarantee that the McLean County Circuit Court won't get involved in these proceedings again. They're seized of jurisdiction and they've already refused an application by the mother to move the proceedings to somewhere else. So Ultimately, what the American courts will do is out of the father's hands and he can't offer the protection that the mother seeks to allow her to come back to America. And so the judge says, in my judgment, this mother, who is intelligent and fiercely analytical, has fully assessed the situation as she sees it and has made up her mind. Although she did not say as much in terms, and these are my words, not hers, she has convinced herself that if this child leaves England and enters the United States of America at all, the father has already won and she has lost and she would rather hand him over now and face a torrent of prolonged litigation with, she believes, only one inevitable outcome. It would exhaust her to do so and do yet more damage to the child. Further, she continues acutely to fear that she is at significant risk of arrest and detention on or soon after arrival in the US. No assurances, such as those proposed in the emails last week or in the fleshed out draft order, which has since been circulated, will reassure her otherwise. As Mr. Turner QC put it during his oral submissions, If I order a return of the child, she sees handover as inevitable, and it is better to do it in a managed way here than in an unmanaged and possibly very abrupt way there. For these reasons, I am satisfied on the very unusual and specific facts of this case and having heard all evidence from the mother, as I have described, that the defence under Article 13b is indeed established by the mother. There is a grave risk that the return of the child would expose him to the grave psychological harm of separation from his mother, Although that conclusion only opens the door to the exercise of a discretion, and Article 13b employs the words not bound to order return, it is a discretion which realistically can only be exercised one way once that conclusion has been reached. The Hague Convention is not an instrument for exposing children to a grave risk of harm or otherwise placing them in intolerable situations. What do you think?
0: I hadn't read this case, so I was listening very closely, and then the plot twist with the email to the judge. Again, I see where the judge is coming from, and I think the point you make about our cases are about the specific child and the specific parents and the specific family. We, of course, have broader frameworks within which we try to work and general principles that guide us, but courts tend to be unimpressed if you make... We, we made this point with the Griffiths analysis that we did last episode or the episode before, where I said well it's you know it's specifically about this child and the court's not going to be impressed by sweeping generalizations and it may well be that Holman would have reached a completely different conclusion with a different child. It also emphasizes the importance of expert psychological evidence because he wouldn't have been able to reach that conclusion without the benefit of that psychologist articulating what the impact on his child is going to be. You said that they would both instructed silk, so I imagine they're relatively well off and have the means to be able to instruct an expert psychologist in private law proceedings, instruct high-level counsel, and that is not an option that's available to the vast majority of people. So parents who don't have the same financial means who find themselves in this position may not have been able to avail themselves of that expertise, because it's usually in the thousands the instruction of an expert psychologist to do work like that.
1: Yeah, I also think it's amazing that this is a mother who accepts and fully acknowledges that she abducted this child and hid the child and the whereabouts of the child for two years. And I love seeing judgments that don't punish parents for the sake of misbehaving. They do what is right for this child in this time. And whilst I imagine that father is very disappointed with this outcome, the child isn't going to be going back to America. He's going to be staying here. That is quite an incredible conclusion to reach after two years of essentially dodging authorities and courts and court orders both in America and here to then say I have legitimate reasons for not wanting to return and the court agreeing with you I think is quite unique really I've not read a case like this in a long time I also think the paragraph 28 where Mr Justice Holman says I will not expose him to harm just to vindicate the will of the international community I mean, that's incredible. We're talking about a High Court judge in England saying, essentially, to the entire community of the Hague Convention, which relies fully on judges essentially ordering summary return at the earliest option, I'm not going to do that. This is the case where, for the first time in a while, I agree that this is not a child who should be returned back to where they were abducted from, which is amazing, I think. And it's not normally... I normally see cases like this, I don't know about you, on the grounds of very significant domestic violence or the grounds of very significant physical harm. This is a psychological harm case. This is about separation and about the impact of a child on his psychology and his emotions and his well-being. Very nuanced, incredible. I think, I think it's an incredible judgment. And if anyone ever asked me why I do family law, I'm just going to quote that line at them forever. Not to vindicate the will of the international community. That's why.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's completely right that so many of our cases, the past is the past. And just as His Honour Judge Dancy said in the case that I analysed, it doesn't really matter the whys and wherefores, doesn't really matter. We are where we are. And now we look at the circumstances as they are. And that might seem profoundly unfair in one sense, but it's also extremely logical in another. And I think that for non-family lawyers that's difficult to process but for family lawyers it makes perfect sense and maybe there's a a disconnect between those two modes of thinking.
1: Yeah I'd give it a read it's only 52 paragraphs long and the paragraphs are short so I really would recommend giving it a read Mr Justice Holman does a fantastic job. Okay book, podcast, talk, TV, whatever recommendations what have you got this week?
0: I have two recommendations. One is Couples Therapy on BBC iPlayer, which is available for everyone to watch at their leisure. There are lots of episodes that have been uploaded on there. It's a fly on the wall series where viewers get an insight into different couples therapy sessions. And we've said this before, we'll say it again, but so much of family law is about understanding the nature of human relationships, why people do what they do, what motivates them, why they stay in relationships, how they can go from loving each other to loathing each other. So I think that this series is a really interesting way to explore those issues and to get thinking about that. Family law is all about people and you need to know how people tick if you want to be a family lawyer. So have a look at that. My other recommendation I have just started and we will probably pick up on in the next episodes as it's a four-part series and I've only watched episode one. And it's called Kiri and it's on Netflix. And Sarah Lancashire, who I'm obsessed with, plays an unorthodox, slightly scatty, but hugely compassionate social worker. She is responsible for a young Black child who is about to be adopted by her foster parents, a middle-class white couple. And she makes a decision to permit unsupervised contact between the child and her paternal grandparents. So the child had been having supervised contact with the paternal grandparents, the social worker decides that can step up to unsupervised. And then what happens is the paternal grandparents allow the child's father to attend to that contact. The father has a history of criminality, isn't supposed to be having any contact with her. She is then abducted, and her body is found shortly after. Now, I know there have been some criticisms of Kiri by social workers who are like how is this woman allowed to stay in this job taking her dog everywhere driving children around whilst having quite a severe drinking problem turning up to a young person's address who she supports and throwing up in her kitchen so those are all things that did happen in episode one that's fair enough putting that to one side what I really like about this show is I think it does show the immense courage and commitment of social workers to their jobs. It shows the pressure they're under. It shows the risky situations that they have to put themselves in. In one scene, another social worker is in hospital, having been struck by one of the young people that she is responsible for. Most importantly for me, from episode one, it shows that their whole job is one of assessment of risk, and that is absolutely terrifying social workers deal with parents and family members who can often be very deceptive very charming concealing their bad behavior whilst appearing outwardly compliant people behave in very unpredictable ways that social workers can't always foresee they are criticized for being too cautious undermining a child's relationship with their family or they're criticized for not being cautious enough And the scenario that's presented in this show is an extreme one, but it does pick up on the tension that social workers are always confronted with, which is how do you balance a child's right to have a meaningful relationship with her birth family to having her cultural needs met against the potential risk of harm to the child of that exposure. And social workers make those sorts of decisions all the time, and sometimes it turns out fantastically and sometimes it goes terribly wrong, but they are frequently the subject of judgment when things do go wrong, but would we necessarily have done things differently in their shoes? Maddie talked about this a few episodes ago, but social workers are working within a system that has been stripped of its resources. Their caseloads are insane. They make life-defining decisions daily with little time to think about it. So, I I found the series interesting within that context. This is a social worker who has the care of a child who is about to be adopted. And as we've just talked about, adoption is that severing from her roots, the severing from her birth family. This child has a relationship with her paternal grandparents. That contact has been supervised, it's been going well. The social worker had no concerns. She thought the natural progression is to make that unsupervised. And then something goes terribly wrong. And I think that having a little bit of empathy and compassion for how very difficult that job is as a social worker would go a long way.
1: I've actually seen it and I know who did it, but I won't tell you. I remember this. It aired when I was in my first six of pupillage and I thought it was amazing. And it's a, it does deal with this issue of cultural needs and identity really, really well. So I would recommend any people who are doing involvement with cultural needs and adoption and so on, to watch it because I think it handles that really well I think the rest of it's slightly mad but it is a tv show so but no it's good I I, I really like it I would recommend it sort of dovetails into mine so my recommendation this week is an iPlayer program called Split Up in Care Life Without Siblings and it's done by Ashley John-Baptiste who is a journalist who grew up in care numerous foster placements so I think he says he had six foster placements he was 18 who recently found out that he had a brother that he knew nothing about on his paternal side and he looks at the care system and how it treats sibling relationships and whether they can be kept together it's only about half an hour and I think it's really worth watching that it's a very hot topic at the moment I remember it was all over the place at the beginning of last year sibling contact in care and making sure that siblings spend time together if they can't be placed together and I think it's been tied into a number of changes with foster care regulations that have meant that Foster children are not allowed to share rooms anymore, which means that it's very difficult to place children all together because who has three or four spare rooms for a sibling group of three or four? So it does look at all those difficulties. There's also an interview with a very senior social worker who basically accepts that the local authority are running out of resources and that soon the system will basically be beset by poverty and they'll be unable to make proper choices for these children. There are also a couple of really heartwarming success stories there's a girl called Saskia in it who grew up in care separated from her brothers who is now training to be a social worker and is reunited with her brothers and she's so eloquent and so switched on and just a pleasure to watch her she's done so so well so I really think it's worth watching both for the difficulties with care but also for some of the real successes and the ways in which social workers are properly supporting children but the local authority that they interviewed do say essentially if we don't fix the system that social workers are working in it's devastating but for the next generation there will be no more future for children in care if we don't make changes as soon as we can and the government give a statement at the end and it's rubbish so i'd really recommend watching it i think it's really nuanced and it deals with the issues really well from a sort of layman's perspective and it's on my player recommend it
0: if you are interested in sibling contact post-adoption contact the nuffield foundation has some really good resources on this there was a report that was launched in my first six of pupillage in 2018 called siblings contact and the law an overlooked relationship by Daniel Monk and Jan McBarish so have a look at that because that explores a shifting cultural attitude towards the importance of sibling ties and bonds and the implications for that for adoption so check that out tweet of the week Maddie
1: Yes, my tweet of the week is from uh, my friend Eve Robinson at Eve S. Robinson, who's a barrister at 36. And she says, I'm often asked what a day in the life of a junior family barrister is really like. So here goes. Today I'm off to Leicester, which starts with me seeing hours of the morning I haven't for a long time. Hashtag train one of two. And there's then a thread basically taking you through her day for an FHDRA in Leicester. And I thought it was done really well it really does show the glitz and the glam of the junior bar because she's on a train at 5.52am to Leicester for a hearing at 10. And she then chronicles what she does at court and when she comes back. It's been really popular on Twitter. And I think it's a really good idea for, again, we're in pupillage season. If anyone wants an idea of what it looks like to be a junior barrister, she's around our level of call, then this is the reality. So go and check it out on her page because I think it's, it's really useful and really well done.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things that I've heard from people who are on pupillage committees, feedback to pupillage applicants is there's sometimes a bit of a naivety about what the job actually entails, and it's really important through doing mini pupilages, through talking to people, that you know exactly what it's like on the job because you are not in the Supreme Court every day arguing about incredibly important legal points. Most of the time, you're in the middle of nowhere, somewhere that you would not be otherwise, arguing about whether the kid should be picked up from Morrison's at 6.15 or 6.17. And that's life. So, yep, I will check out. I, I think I have seen East tweet the first one, but maybe not the uh, entire thread. My tweet of the week is from Legally Feminist at Rach underscore J, and she writes, people underestimate the emotional toll of working in law, especially a sensitive area such as family law. I don't come to work to be shouted at. I just left a phone call shaken up. I normally have a very thick skin and we deal with it a lot, but today it got me. And I've really, really felt that tweet. my heart because it's it's something that affects me occasionally and it's not just you know judges and opponents and things like that but often you could be yelled at by your own client you can be yelled at by the litigant in person on the other side and whereas with professionals if a solicitor or another barrister spoke to me in a way that i thought was inappropriate there's something i can do i can lodge a complaint about them there's action i could take i can speak to them at their level and say that's not appropriate but when it's a lay client or party who do you go to there's there's no kind of board or authority that you can report them to and say that's not appropriate or i'm being harassed or i don't feel comfortable with the way that they're communicating with me whatever and i think to a certain extent you have to accept that that comes with the territory And you have to take measures to mitigate it as much as you can. Tell them that you'll speak to them when they're calmer. Keep a careful note of everything that they say to you. All of that I understand. Doesn't make it any easier in the moment when you are the one who is the subject and object of their anger. So I really feel for her. It it does come with the territory for anyone who wants to be a family lawyer. For every client who tells you what a fantastic job you did and gets you a card afterwards to say thank you. There will be another client or a party who swears at you in court and says that you're incompetent or that you're not doing a good enough job. And it's not you. It's a highly stressful, highly emotionally charged situation. And the worst of people will come out in those situations. So if you ever need to talk to anyone, you can reach out to me and Maddie. We have been there. We can help and be a shoulder to cry on. But just know that you're not alone and that absolutely every other family lawyer is is going through that.
1: Yeah, I think something I'm quite keen on as I'm getting slightly more senior, five years call this year, it's exciting, being very reflective about it, is the importance of boundaries, because there are really no boundaries in the work that we do. We really do delve into people's proper personal lives. And we see a lot of very personal, very emotive content. That doesn't mean that there shouldn't be professional boundaries between ourselves, our clients, our opponents, judges, solicitors, everyone. Just because what we're dealing with is very personal does not mean that we have to be subjected to personal attacks or heightened states of emotion simply because we are there trying to help. So I think establishing boundaries, ending phone calls if they're causing you concern, ending meetings if they're causing you concern, raising issues after meetings or asking solicitors to support you or asking opponents to support you in difficult things, I think needs to happen more. I, every time I've done it, every time I've asked for support from someone I've received it and it's helped. really helped me. So I think that's something that you shouldn't be afraid to ask for is some some assistance from other people and putting in quite firm boundaries with things like phone calls, phone use, text messages, emails, all of that. We talked about this at length last season, but it's not right that we are subjected to a torrent of constant difficult behavior and it shouldn't be that way. And it isn't that way if you don't let it be, I think. Yes, yeah, it's,
0: it's something that's becoming a more acute concern since the onset of the pandemic, because the way that we communicate with our clients and with opponents is very different to how it used to be back in 2019, in that we'd go to court, we'd talk to them at court, we'd leave court, and that would be the end of that communication. But now we have to speak to clients over the phone, we are sometimes expected by judges to email things to them so they have our direct email address. The boundaries, as Maddie says, do get blurred, and people end up communicating with you in a way that they simply weren't able to two years ago. So it's something to be hyper-conscious of right now, especially since it looks like remote working is here to stay in some form
1: well thank you so much everyone that is season two episode six and we will see you next time
0: thanks for joining us bye